electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everyone. On this Monday, I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Riding to the rescue. Stocks are up huge today as investors bet that stimulus is on the way. We'll have all the latest on what the G7, the IMF, and global central banks may be up to. Plus, oil staging a comeback as well after a brutal February that saw the commodity hit its lowest level since 2008. Is this a one-day bounce or the start of a turnaround? We'll speak with Goldman Sachs head of commodities Jeff Curry about that. And there's a record amount of trading in 401ks right now. We will get you the numbers and have the very latest on the Robinhood outage today. But we do begin with this big rally, and Bob Bassani has the numbers for us. Hi, Bob. The important thing, uh, Kelly, is we are at the highs for the day, almost up 800 points in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And I want to show you a chart of the Dow futures prior to the open here, because we went from 26,000 earlier on to 25,000, a thousand point move in about three hours. And now back to 26,200. Think about that. A thousand points down and 1,200 points up. You just don't see that very often. In terms of what was really moving, just take a look at some of the Dow movers here, stuff that had... The stuffing kicked out of them last week here. Walmart's up 6%. Apple up 6%. Visa. Look at Microsoft. Microsoft has regained, not quite, but almost half of the losses in the last week and a half or so. One sector really not participating to the same way uh, is some of the big bank stocks. Goldman, J.P. Morgan, somewhat flattish compared to everything else, but quite a rally off of the lows. And the key here... Kelly, extreme oversold conditions and hopes for fiscal and monetary stimulus around the world. Back to you. Yes, we'll dig into that in just a moment, Bob. Thank you. Let's turn to rates now, which continued their historic plunge with the 10 and 30 yields, a 30 year yields hitting fresh record lows again today. Now we're seeing a bit of a rebound. Rick Santelli is tracking it at the CME. Rick, we almost went below 1% on the 10 year earlier. We certainly did. As a matter of fact, let's start with the short maturities. Look at a one week of twos. Now for today, 82 is about the high yield in our time zone. It got down to 70 pre-time zone. So this is a very important area as you see the deterioration, but we are grabbing. As Kelly referenced, look at a 24 hours of 10s. Before our time zone, we were down to 102. Now here we hover, 108, and it isn't a bad trade. We've been between 106 and 108 all session. We're basically down six basis points. Look at boon yields from July. Minus 71s are all-time negative glow close. Today it got down to minus 68, hovered around minus 62 for the close. Dollar index, this is one of the biggest down days I can remember in a while. We're down close to a whole cent. Look at that week of the dollar index, but here's the big deal. Year to date, we settled at 96.38 last year. We're approaching 97 even. After that big slide, we're still up a bit on the year, but we really want to pay attention to that 2019 close. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, very busy day here. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli at the CME. 
Now let's get to the very latest in the coronavirus outbreak. With the situation here in the U.S. rapidly evolving, Meg Terrell is here with what we know at this hour, Meg. Hi, Kelly. Well, U.S. case numbers are mounting now that state and local labs are gaining their own ability to run tests. There are now 44 cases diagnosed here, according to the CDC and local health labs, in addition to 48 cases among repatriated Americans. Officials closely watching an outbreak in a nursing facility in a Seattle suburb, while New York also confirming its first case. Governor Cuomo saying today community spread is inevitable. As the virus continues its global spread, the World Health Organization saying it's not yet a pandemic, noting still 90 percent of cases have been reported in China. It says it will not hesitate to describe the situation as a pandemic if that's what the evidence suggests. And in just a couple hours, we're going to see pharmaceutical executives at the White House for a meeting on vaccine and drug development. We've confirmed the CEOs or heads of research at Regeneron, Gilead, GSK, Pfizer, J&J, Moderna and others will all be attending. And Meg, we were just discussing as we pay attention to all the economic data to wrap our heads around it. Tomorrow's Super Tuesday. Right. I mean, talk about an event that's going to bring people into crowded places. And I, I wonder if that will... Heard voter turnout, it's going to be tough to tell, but it's certainly a factor we weren't anticipating. Definitely not. And we've already heard from the Chicago Board of Elections, which is uh, talking about what to do, trying to encourage people to consider mail-in voting if they are concerned. I don't believe that they're voting tomorrow. I think it's later in the month of March. Uh, but certainly people should be washing their hands, using hand sanitizer. Uh, if you're sick, consider what you're going to do. Um, any kind of public gathering right now, people are certainly going to be thinking uh, very closely about. Right. And watching, you know, for any signs. Of, that's what I read one thing that said you know, look for signs that people around you are sick. I mean, that is... <laughs> everybody's sick. It's cold and flu season. Right, so. exactly. Uh, how are you <laughs> supposed to tell? All right, Meg, thank you. We appreciate it, Meg Terrell. Now, as Bob mentioned, there is a huge rally on Wall Street today. Why? Investors are now betting on several rate cuts from the Fed to calm markets. And take a look at these probabilities. There's now a 75% chance of a 75 basis point rate cut in March. That's in two weeks. There's a 15% chance of a full percentage point cut now. And today we're also learning that G7 central bankers are planning a call tomorrow to weigh a response to the spread of coronavirus. Joining me now with more on what policymakers should do here, Jason Trenard is chairman of Strategus Research Partners. And Brian McCauley is co-portfolio manager of the Hennessy Focus Fund. And he's also with us. So it's, it's great to see you both. And Jason, I'll just begin with you. These rate cut uh, probabilities are, are huge now. I mean, do you expect that big of a cut coming in a couple of weeks' time? And what do you think about tomorrow with this G7 call? Yeah, well, I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised at the, the, the magnitude of the cuts that the market is expecting, but I, I have to say I'm also a little surprised that the Fed hasn't cut already, uh, especially given what happened uh, last week. And I think it's not necessary that would um, modify or mollify some of the um, the economic or the um, or the healthcare concerns, but it would ease financial conditions, which have tightened uh, pretty markedly up until today. And it seems to me that the risk reward for the Fed is much more uh, designed for them to ease rather than uh, them to stay tight here. Jason, let me ask you, because you're, you're such a thoughtful, knowledgeable guy. So here's, I, I need you to help enlighten me. Why would it not be better for President Trump to come out tonight, tomorrow, and say, we're doing the Hong Kong thing. We're doing $1,000 checks for Americans. We're going to give you a break on your income taxes. We're going to do a bit, maybe we're going to do a payroll tax cut. We're going to help businesses who are in trouble because of yeah. this. Wouldn't that have just as much of an effect, if not a greater effect, than having the Fed cut rates by, I mean, there's almost going to be nothing left to cut if they go this route. And even Goldman was saying, if they do, it's not clear it would work. 
Yeah, well, I, I do think it would ease financial conditions. It's something you can do immediately. I think a lot of the things that the administration could do would take some time. I do think there's a role to play. Uh, we looked at 9-11 uh, as just as some proxy. There's no perfect analog. The economy is already in recession. And I think if you look at the, what the, the, the kind of postmortem on what worked, what allowed that to be a relatively short-lived uh, hit to the economy when you shut down transportation and you shut down the financial markets was a coordination of both fiscal policy and monetary policy. But monetary policy actually was, was credited as having the most immediate impact. And so it's not a cure-all. I can understand why the Fed doesn't want to ease, uh, because I think at this point more easing could do more harm than good absent the coronavirus. Given the coronavirus, though, it seems to me okay. there's very little risk of them uh, over-easing. Brian, I thought it was interesting, your, your views on this market, where I wasn't sure how to feel about one of your picks here being a debt collector. I mean, t- talk to me about what you think the economic impact will be of coronavirus and where you think investors should, you know, should, should look for opportunities. Certainly. So obviously we're looking at relatively unprecedented circumstances with the coronavirus. It could probably will get much worse before it gets better. And so we expect that we're probably in for some short to intermediate term economic pain. But at the Hennessy Focus Fund, we try to take a very long term view in investing. And so what we're focused on in an environment like this is not trying to predict uh, the direct economic impact in the short term or market impact. But how are our businesses going to fare through this environment and what does their long term prospect look like? So we're reanalyzing, Okay, what do our balance sheets look like? Mm-hmm. What's the persistency of revenue growth and demand at the businesses we own? And importantly, what does the supply chain look like for these companies? And so we've got a, a, a handful of companies that we think are very well positioned for uh, what might be a difficult economic time um, or also pretty well positioned if things uh, pass without much pain. And those include Encore Capital. That's a company I mentioned a, a moment ago, American Tower, the cell tower company, O'Reilly Automotive, which is an interesting play. But my sort of final question to you, Brian, is would you then, w- looking through these companies exactly the way that you know thorough investors should be looking through them, would you prefer to see a monetary response here or something that could be more targeted in terms of a fiscal response? Uh, wh- what, what do you think would be best? What would make you as an investor feel most comfortable going forward? Well, I think that it's important to recognize that we're still relatively early in the unfolding of how coronavirus is going to play out in the U.S. and globally. And so I would be hesitant to rush forward too quickly with a strong fiscal or monetary response. In fact, I think that uh, too too strong a response, too much alarm might cause more damage than it does good. So I would be uh, measured in my pace of response. All right. We have to move on. But, Jason, before we go, how much of today's rally is because uh, Biden won in South Carolina and maybe took away some of Bernie's momentum? I have to say, Kelly, I don't think it's uh, that much. I think it has a lot more to do with uh, the G7 uh, call that's uh, going to be tomorrow and an expectation uh, that uh, that there's going to be some coordinated response among uh, among the G7 countries. But, you know, so there better be at this point. There then. better be yeah. at this point. And then tomorrow we have Super Tuesday. We'll see, you know, if, if Mr. Sanders wins, uh, we'll, we'll have, you By know, another, another something else to worry about. By the way, Jason, what, what response are we talking about? I mean, now that central bankers are going to be on the call, are people looking for a coordinated global cut or is some kind of statement going to suffice? I think, you know, I think competence 
and confidence, along with the passage of time, uh, would do wonders. I, I think there was certainly a, a little bit of a sense of panic uh, last week. I think central bankers and policymakers, generally speaking, have done a pretty good job thus far. But I, I think just some sort of sense that there's vigilance about what's happening in the mm -hmm. financial markets would go a long way. So I, I'm actually hoping for a cut. Uh, but I think a strong statement would probably suffice for now. Then people will worry about the, the Fed announcement later on this month. Okay, great thoughts from both of you today. I really appreciate your time. Jason Trenard and Brian McCauley talking about the markets here on this big rally. Uh, we've got a news alert from the White House, though. Let's get right to Eamon Javers. Eamon, what's happening? Yeah, that's right. The White House is now saying, according to senior administration officials, they're going to take some action against Chinese state propaganda outlets, as the White House refers to them, operating in the United States. This follows last month when we saw the Chinese government expel a number of Wall Street Journal reporters uh, from China. Today, senior administration officials telling reporters that they're going to take two steps regarding those employees of Chinese uh, state media organizations operating in the United States. One is they're going to cap the total number of, of those employees among the five different Chinese media outlets who operate here. They're going to require them to reduce their number of reporters operating inside the United States. And the other thing is they're going to impose a duration of stay limits on some of the visas issued to those Chinese uh, media outlet reporters. So they will at some point in the future have to reapply uh, to be given an extended visa uh, to stay once they hit the time frame. The White House not saying what time frame specifically yet they're going to impose on those Chinese state media reporters here in the United States. But clearly an effort, uh, as the White House calls it, to achieve reciprocity with the Chinese government in terms of how the Chinese treat U.S. journalists uh, in, uh, who are operating in China, but also a res response to that Wall Street Journal action that we saw the Chinese government take last month, Kelly. Right, exactly. When they kicked the reporters out over a, an op-ed they hadn't uh, even written. Eamon, we appreciate right. it. Eamon Javers is at the White House. Moving along, coronavirus is taking a major toll on manufacturing in China. With factory activity slowing sharply in February, it was, in fact, the sharpest contraction on record. According to today's Kaishin Market PMI survey, official government data over the weekend also showed a record slowdown in both services and manufacturing in the country. Despite all of that, my next guest says that while China's GDP growth will be sharply negative this quarter, things won't be as bad as feared in the longer run. Joining me now is Derek Scissors. He's an Asian economist at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Derek, it's good to see you. It's been some time. And what is your thinking about how severe an economic impact coronavirus is having in China, where the number of new cases has continued uh, to slow its growth? Right. So background health, on which I'm not an expert, uh, if the Chinese are at least reporting the trend right, they could have the number of cases too low. But if the trend is right, um, the, the health impact of the virus is fading. It's been terrible for the economy in the first quarter. Um, you can't get a positive result. The negative result is at least two and two, two and a half percent. It's probably worse than that. You see Chinese firms trying to borrow like crazy. The Chinese government accommodating them. They're not even going to review bond issues anymore. But um, if it's, in fact, the case that the virus is, is burning itself out, which we all hope for, the recovery should be very sharp, and it should occur some, at some point starting in the second quarter. Uh, Chinese labor force, productivity, the capital stock, none of those are changed. So if you're focused on first quarter results, they're going to be terrible, much worse than the Chinese government suggests. But we should have a sharp recovery starting in the second quarter and lasting about a year. So you're in the V-shaped recovery camp, and this is going to be the debate we, that plays out all year. Uh, prior to last week, it seemed, though, many in the U.S. here were as well. Now we've got more people thinking lower for longer in terms of the hit to U.S. GDP. Uh, based on your point of view, should things rebound here uh, more quickly as well? Or is it that we're going to face a, a longer period of time of 
you know, rolling uh, cancellations of events, school closures, the kinds of things that could further depress activity? Well, let me just say I'm an expert on the Chinese economy, not the U.S. economy. Um, but if the Chinese economy does have this V-shaped recovery, which I think will occur, the U.S. problem is we've seen the, the, the stress beforehand and, and we haven't yet had the impact on our economy yet. So the market is showing uh, that, that they're stressed because they're seeing what's going on in China. The actual impact on the U.S. economy hasn't started. So it's going to feel like a long time for us, even with a V-shaped recovery in China. But the trajectory should be the same. Again, productivity hasn't changed, and productivity is what drives medium-term economic growth. What about Hong Kong, where we're seeing some pretty uh, innovative measures, you know, whether it's uh, direct stimulus to citizens or you know, tax breaks, both to citizens and businesses and other measures. I think some forgiveness of electric bills. Um, is it just China where you're watching in terms of the biggest uh, hits to the global economy on this, or should we include Hong Kong and Japan and some of the other biggest economies in the region? Well, I think where you would be concerned is, a, is, a, is something that complements in a bad way the Chinese hit. And there, Hong Kong is a financial complement. It could affect credit. And Japan and South Korea are supply chain complements. So those are two major areas of outbreak in Japan and South Korea outside China um, that's going to disrupt the supply chain for longer. The, the, the outbreak in South Korea comes after the outbreak in China. We could get China back on its feet you know, in, in May, for example, and still be facing problems in South Korea and Japan. So where I look for concern is areas that are going to unfortunately complement the Chinese blow to the global economy, and that's in East Asia. Okay. Derek, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Derek Scissors is Asia economist at AEI. Coming up, 401k trading activity hit a record at the end of last week. So what changes are investors making in light of this market volatility? And should they be making any changes at all? That's next. Plus, more on the supply chain fallout from coronavirus. Two CEOs with ties to China will weigh in on how their businesses are faring. And take a look at the tech spider ETF today. It's up over 3%. It's on pace for its best day since June 4th. Apple is leading the way, up more than 6%, and on pace for its best day since December of 2018. And as we head to a quick break, don't forget you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back at 2. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on these markets right now. A strong rally on Wall Street, not quite as strong as it was about an hour ago. We topped out with a gain of about 815 points for the Dow. We're up 657 right now. Still, a 2.5% increase has us above 26,000, and the S&P is at 3,020. We'll continue to monitor all of that. Now, new data shows that trading activity in 401k plans reached a record high on Friday. Investors in these large corporate plans apparently rushing to reposition their portfolios after last week's sell-off, ignoring that old adage of staying the course when it comes to retirement saving. For more, let me bring in Rob Austin. He's vice president of research at Alight Solutions, which tracks this data. And our own Sherrod Epperson is here as well. Rob, we'll just start with you. And what can you tell us? What are people buying and selling? 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Kelly. So last week truly was a historic week for 401k traders and investors. Uh, what we saw was last week, the volume increased throughout the week. By the time Friday hit, it was almost 16 times an average day. And what we saw, Kelly, was that people were leaving equities and moving to fixed income. It's clearly a reaction to the market correction. Uh, Sharon, I mean, do you hear that and... and Get concerned. Listen, I'm not trying to call whether bond yields can go lower because they have defied, you know, people saying they can't go lower right. for years now. But what do you think when you when you hear what what people are doing? Well, it, it's worrisome that they're making these knee jerk reactions. It's important, though, that they're looking at their 401k. Some people never look at their 401k. So this is a wake up call to do that. But what they should be doing is really thinking about when they're going to retire. If you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s even, you have such a long time. You should be invested. You should be staying the course. 80% stocks, 20% bonds, probably, most financial advisors say. And you should be checking that asset allocation and actually making sure that your contribution rate is perhaps even higher than it is right now because you don't want to miss that free money with the company match. So if you're taking a look at the 401k, see what you're contributing as a percentage and make sure you're taking full advantage of the free money. You know, Sharon brings up an interesting point, Rob. Is there any way of knowing sort of what age breakdown we're talking about? Were the people buying bonds, you know, those closer to retirement or those with a long time uh, still? It really was across all age demographics. Um, And last week was truly historic in that we saw last week's trading activity was higher than we saw it in the entire fourth quarter of 2019. So it really wasn't isolated to just one or two people. It wasn't even isolated to one or two age brackets. It was across the board, Kelly. Wow. So, you know, it's not I don't like. Uh, responses, Sharon, that that won't allow people. You look, if you if right. you want to do that, you want to do that. But it is interesting that this surge of activity uh, could come coincident with a near term bottom. Now we'll yeah. see. I'm not, you know, I, I don't believe that this the old saying that this is all dumb money. I don't believe that. I think right. people are often smarter than we give them credit for. Right. But. Are there any recommendations? Well, about they haven't maybe been necessarily looking at what here. they're supposed to be doing with their money or what they are, what their initial intentions were. And so making these knee jerk reactions, it's not uncommon when people get emotional, they make these changes. But a lot of people, research has shown, have said, you know, when I made this decision, I later regretted it. And a lot of these people are people who know something about the markets. They're following it, at least. But they just they went with their gut instead of what their goals really are. So that's something that you just don't want to do. And also those who were like, let me just cash out right now. Let me take a withdrawal. Think about the early withdrawal penalty if you're under 59 and a half that's going to cost you, the taxes that you're going to have to pay on that money. You don't want to do that. You don't want to forget what your financial goals are. And if it's money outside of the 401k and money that you may need for retirement right now or in a couple of years, then it should never have been in the stock part of your portfolio right. anyway. You should have had more fixed income. And yields are so low now. I mean, we talk about the 10-year going below 1% and, yeah. and what's been happening with the kind of bonds people would traditionally be buying. I wonder if you can even recommend those anymore. I mean, it, obviously, if you're holding to maturity, a little bit different story, but you're still not getting a ton well, of Well, a lot of financial advisors are saying, still saying stable value funds are a way to go for some protection. But you just don't want to have too much there because if you have a long time in retirement or you're a long way away from retirement, you need growth. And for that, you're going to have to be invested in stocks. All right. Rob, is it quieting down today? 
<laughs> so far, we haven't quite seen exactly what's happening, but we are keeping our tabs on this one. It should be pretty interesting. All right. Do keep us posted. It's fascinating. Rob Austin, we appreciate it uh, with the light solutions. And our own Sharon Epperson, thank you as well. Oh, my pleasure. As the market does rebound today from its worst week since the financial crisis, the free trading app Robinhood is experiencing a system-wide outage that's impacting its more than 10 million users. Let's get to Kate Rooney out west with the very latest on this. Kate? Hey, Kelly, a widespread outage at Robinhood is forcing its traders to stay on the sidelines today. The startup telling users they've identified the issue, but as of a few minutes ago, they still can't make trades. This isn't the first glitch we've seen over at Robinhood. In November, an isolated group found a way to trade with what they called unlimited margin. Robinhood's not alone this week, though. Fidelity, Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade Saying clients were experiencing issues uh, last week, and one factor that's possibly contributing to those recent technical issues could be higher than average trading volumes. Robinhood apologizing to users on Twitter, but getting plenty of questions over if and when they're going to compensate users for any losses due to the outage. Kelly? Kate, I imagine there are people saying, look, I wanted to buy Apple before this 6 or 7% move, and I couldn't. That's true. We, we looked at some of the top stocks on um, on Robinhood last week, and you had Virgin Galactic, Apple, Tesla, and a few of those stocks are actually trading at about 50 or 58 percent of their um, 30-day average trading volume. So some on Twitter are speculating that that could be due to some of these millennials not actually buying today on Robinhood. They've got 10 million users. Um, so we'll see uh, when they actually open again if that's the case. That's a great point. Kate, we appreciate it. Thank you. Kate Rooney, a tough, tough day for those trying to get to their Robinhood accounts. Coming up, Goldman Sachs says there is one commodity out there that is immune to the coronavirus. Their head of commodities, Jeff Curry, joins us to explain why. And take a look at shares of Twitter. The stock is soaring about 7.5% today on reports that Elliott Management is seeking to replace CEO Jack Dorsey and has taken a stake in the company. The activist firm is seeking to replace Dorsey because his attention is divided as CEO of both Twitter and Square. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. The business world is remembering one of the most iconic CEOs of the 20th century today. Jack Welch, the legendary former chairman and CEO of GE, passed away today at the age of 84. He was a railroad conductor's son who rode the corporate ladder to the top of one of the world's largest industrial conglomerates. Here's a look at his remarkable life. He's been called a white-collar revolutionary. My name is Jack Welch. I'm chairman and chief executive officer of General Electric. From working class Massachusetts kid to GE plastics engineer to CEO, 
He took an old line industrial company by the throat and through ingenuity, vision and sheer force of personality, turned it into a global leader in finance, media and high tech health care. During his 20 years running General Electric, from 1981 to 2001, Jack Welsh drove the company's market value from $14 billion to more than $400 billion. He was called Neutron Jack, a name he hated after cutting more than 100,000 jobs during his reign. Jack Welsh streamlined GE, establishing a blueprint for other CEOs along the way. He slashed payrolls, closed factories, and shuttered or sold GE subsidiaries that were not number one or number two in their industries. A role for the mediocre is one that is short-lived. Welsh was passionate and unstoppable, a visionary who spearheaded GE's shift from manufacturing to financial services through numerous acquisitions and always made sure to point out that he made his best deals on the golf course. In 1986, GE dove headfirst into the media business with the acquisition of RCA, which owned the NBC Broadcasting Network. Welsh sold almost everything else, but he kept NBC. GE executive Bob Wright was named president of NBC, and in just three years, the network made its first foray into the cable industry with the Consumer News and Business Channel, CNBC. Welsh's decision to spend more than $150 million to buy CNBC competitor Financial News Network was key to CNBC's later success. It's no different than any other game. And what we had to do was to take it from being a dry text in a paper to the locker room, if you will, to show what the game was all about, how the winners felt and how the losers felt. And that's what CNBC was designed to do. By the end of his tenure, Welsh was known less as a cost-cutter and more for his dynamic management style. He pioneered informality in the workplace, abandoning management bureaucracy and archaic business ways. A demanding but passionate leader, Welsh emphasized the value of candor. He encouraged employees to speak up, to be upfront, and to work hard. Good corporations create a healthy atmosphere where people can thrive and grow and benefit their families and have great lives. I believe that to my toes. A man of surprise, he often unexpectedly stopped in at GE plants and offices or sometimes in the newsroom. In 1999, Fortune named Jack Welsh manager of the century. Before stepping down as CEO in 2001, he set up an internal succession race for his job, calling the eventual choice the most important decision he would ever make. Jeffrey Immelt succeeded Welsh, but the company struggled in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and the financial crisis of 2008, which was devastating for the lending unit that Welsh had dramatically expanded while he was CEO. Welsh's retirement turned out to be anything but. He continued to lead the dialogue of modern business as a management guru who concentrated on winning and never looking back. How can I have a regret? I mean, I'm an Irish kid from Salem who ends up with the greatest job in the world, and I was trying to make 10,000 bucks to live on. I mean, I had a great run. <laughs> and his wife, Susie, sending the following statement to us. She says, more than anything else, leader, business icon, management genius, more than those things, although they are all true, too, Jack was a life force made of love, pure, bright, diminishable love, his irrepressible passion for people, all people, his brilliant curiosity about every single thing on earth, 
His gargantuan generosity of spirit towards friends and strangers alike, she says they added up to a man who was superhuman yet completely human at once. He changed the world by touching people deeply and authentically, helping them see and reach dreams they couldn't even imagine for themselves. And somehow, crazily somehow, he also managed to be the greatest husband and stepfather who ever lived, giving our family 20 amazing years of adventure, happiness, and joy. Our hearts so much larger and fuller, having known and loved him, are broken. Again, that's Susie Welch. And I'm joined now by CNBC's Sue Herrera, who worked with and for Jack. And you mm-hmm. got to know him very well over the years, Sue. I did. I knew Jack for the 30 years that uh, he hired me, along with Bob Wright. Um, so Jack was one of the first people that I ever met when I joined CNBC. And um, passion is is who he, he just had the most amazing drive and passion. And it was all about winning. That was the goal. Whatever, you, whatever task he gave you, you had to win. And the worst feeling in the world was letting him down. You just wanted to crawl underneath a rock and not come out for about 20 years. Because he gave you everything that you said you needed to do whatever that job was that he wanted you to do. So there really was no excuse for not succeeding and, and not delivering because it was all about winning for Jack. Any stories in particular that you're thinking about today? Well, he was the one who sent me to China and Russia and Japan and India to do documentaries about the emergence of those, uh, those economies. And I don't think I would have had the opportunity to adopt my daughters from China if he hadn't sent me. Wow. So I used to joke with him. I said, you know, you're responsible for my kids. And he, <laughs> he used to say, do I have to send them to college? <laughs> that was such a typical Jack response. But, you know, he, he basically would drop by unannounced and walk through the newsroom and just see how everybody was doing. He, even though he was running General Electric, CNBC was very important to him. He viewed that as a way to tell financial stories, successes and losses, and he loved it. He loved being in the newsroom. He loved joking with people. Um, He was very approachable, really, much more approachable than I think most people thought. And he enjoyed the repartee. And and you, you were encouraged to push back on him. You usually didn't win. You were encouraged to push back. <laughs> no, for a guy whose mantra is winning, I imagine he knew how to get the last word. <laughs> he did. But, you know, he, he wanted you to challenge him. Right. So that was, that was who Jack was. He'll yeah. be very much missed. Like you said, touching your family in so many ways. Yes, absolutely. Sue, thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back with some breaking news on the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Elon Moy with us. Elon. Well, Kelly, Senator Amy Klobuchar is suspending her presidential campaign and announcing that she will endorse former Vice President Joe Biden. Klobuchar will fly to Dallas tonight, where she will appear at a rally with the vice president. And this is just another sign that uh, Joe Biden appears to be having some momentum in this race after his decisive win in South Carolina. She is the third candidate to announce that she is dropping out in recent days. So, Kelly, this is increasingly looking like a two-way contest between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, with now Amy Klobuchar dropping out of the race. Back to you. And, Elon, you know, we were just talking to Meg uh, about this off the top of the hour, but tomorrow is Super Tuesday. So now we've had Pete Buttigieg and and Klobuchar both dropping out uh, before that, like you said, to try to kind of coalesce uh, support. But I wonder as well, 
if there's going to be any impact from coronavirus from people who might not be showing up to the polls or from results that might have more absentee ballots than they would have thought of just even a few short weeks ago. Well, I think one thing that's important to remember is that both California and Colorado have been allowing people to mail in their ballots uh, for quite some time now. So it's actually going to be interesting to see what happens to those people who had voted for Buttigieg or Klobuchar hmm. previously. Um, but we'll just have to see who ends up turning out to the polls. We also heard President Trump say that he expects his rally uh, tonight to be completely safe and that folks should not be afraid to come out. But certainly with these new concerns, uh, that might put a damper on the vote. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's going to be a, quite a day. Elon, thank you. We appreciate it. Again, Elon Moy with the news. Amy Klobuchar has dropped out of the race. Now, it was a wild ride for commodities in February, along with everything else. Oil ended the month with its worst week since the financial crisis. And while most commodities are rebounding today, my next guest says we're facing the biggest hit to oil demand in more than a decade. For more, let me welcome in Jeff Curry. He's the global head of commodities research for Goldman Sachs. And true to his title, he's in London. Jeff, it's good to see you. And how much worse do you hey, think it's going to get uh, for the oil price and for demand here? Well, I think it's hard to take a directional view on oil right now, given the fundamental uncertainty. Um, as a result, we just don't like the risk-reward for going out there with the exception of gold, which we're positive on. Um, in terms of thinking about commodities, one thing to keep in mind is that they're spot assets. They have to reflect today's supply and demand fundamentals. In contrast, financial markets are anticipatory assets. They can start to price, once we've hit, hit bottom, they can price the future. Given that, with commodities, they're going to be dealing with a surplus. As you, know, as you pointed out, it's the worst demand shock since 08, 09. They're going to deal with a surplus until at least um, in the second half of this year, which means we would be a seller of most rallies. But we do, you know, commodities do have futures markets, and there are ways of looking to see if the curbs are, you know, kind of sh up or down uh, shaped, let's say. What do you see when you look out there? Has most of the damage to the oil price been priced in now, or do people think the price is going to keep dropping? Well, well, actually, commodities are the opposite of, again, of, of what you would think about the expectations of forward curves. When the forward curve is upward sloping in a commodity, it means you're building inventory. It means you'd have to you know, buy the commodity today, put it in storage, and you want to have a higher price in the future to pay for that cost of carry. As a result, we look at oil. Yeah, the first two contracts are what we call backwardation on the front end. But as you look out over the curve, the rest of the curve is in a contango, which would indicate that this market is in a surplus when we start to look out 6, 12 months out on the forward curve. So in other words, it's encouraging people to build inventories right now. And that means going forward, we're going to continue to have more supply than even as that demand is dropping off. All right. So We've, we've hit 43, I think, on the price of oil over the weekend. That's still too high. I mean, what, what looks economic to you in the 30s, lower? Well, I, in terms of thinking about on a, on a Brent basis, um, you know, we, we thought you know, the downside would be somewhere in that 45 to low 40s, which would translate to somewhere in the high 30s on a WTI basis. Um, but I think the key here is that the fundamental uncertainty about this and the extent of the demand damage in the developed markets is still very high. And if we think about the outlook for oil, there's three things we're watching. China, ex-China, and OPEC. China, the situation, the worst is probably behind us. And we think the total demand hit in China was somewhere around 3.5 million barrels per day. Um, and we're seeing, you know, a reduction in the overall cases. We're seeing restarts in economic activity in China. The problem is it's now um, contagion has moved to the developed markets. And right. we don't know the extent of it, which is why we'd be careful of calling the bottom right here. So let me ask you about gold before I have to let you go. Uh, how high? The all-time high, I think, was around $1,900 
uh, several years ago. Are you seeing us go above that level? Um, our target is $1,800 an ounce right now. Um, and, you know, versus the 1900, one thing to keep in mind, the dollar is near record strength. And when we hit the 1900, the dollar was near record weakness, which tells you just how strong gold is today um, in the $1,600 an ounce range. Now, there's three things we're watching on gold. Um, the first one is you have a lot of central bank easing. We like to call gold the currency of last resort. Mm -hmm. And in the current environment, when you have nine out of 10 of the G10 banks easing, um, you're going to have a lot of debasement in the currency. Second thing is de-dollarization. Central bank demand from emerging markets remains high. You know, I like to point out um, central bank demand last year was the highest since the Nixon era, representing 22% of gold supply. We don't see that changing anytime in the near future. Hmm. The third reason we like gold really has to do with it's the best hedge for geopolitical risk of any sort, particularly the type that we're seeing right now um, with the virus. So the net of it, that's the one commodity. We have a very strong directional view. We want to be long here. And again, we're trading 1600 with the upside target of $1,800 an ounce. All right. So 1800 for gold and maybe high 30s for WTI? I, you know, on, on Brent, um, I'm comfortable saying in the, in the 40s. The thing is, when we start to go down, that differential starts to to um, contract. Um, so, you know, let's say the, the, the low 40s on, on, uh, on Brent, and if, you know, if the differential stays where it is, you're definitely talking in the high 30s on WTI. All right, Jeff, it's great to have you. Again, not often the, you know, people, the, the stuff you're covering, you're not bullish on, if, if, you, if you know what I mean. It's great to see you tonight. We really appreciate it. Jeffrey. We're bullish on gold. Right, exactly. You found one in there. Uh, thank you, sir. Goldman Sachs, Global yeah. Head of Commodities Research. Well, China's manufacturing activity did slump last month as coronavirus shut down factories. Up next, we'll talk to executives of two companies with supply chains dependent on China to see how they're dealing with the outbreak and take a look at the best performing sectors right now in today's market. They are real estate, technology, energy and financials. We should note all 11 sectors are higher and we'll have a whole lot more on this rally straight ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. The coronavirus outbreak in China is shutting down Chinese factories and wreaking havoc on supply chains for a wide range of companies here in the U.S. For more on this ripple effect and what it will mean for the U.S. economy, I'm joined by Lou Lenteni. He's the CEO of Echelon Fitness. And Josh Lorzel is vice president of sales and marketing at Hogwild Toys. And both of these gentlemen depend on China for manufacturing their products. It's great to have you here, uh, both of you, on a day like this. Lou, I'll just begin with you. Um, what can you tell us? As I uh, read here, at some points, the supply chain has been almost entirely shut down. How is the product uh, availability looking for you right now? Well, the um, coronavirus happened during Chinese New Year, where they have a few weeks, two to three weeks off. So it extended that Chinese New Year and kept everyone out of the factories. The good news is we got our first shipment shipping last week. So shipments are starting to move. Um, you know, even when you produce our factories, 100% back on board. But you have all these different suppliers, and some of the suppliers are not coming on board yet. But they are starting to come on board. So it's getting much, much better, and we're we're going to see about a 30-day lag time on some of our deliveries. So a 30-day lag time, but so far no major shortages. You're not changing pricing or dealing with price changes at all. No, we we fortunately we um, prepared for Chinese New Year, and always for Chinese New Year we always stock up with heavy inventory. So we thought that was a fortunate thing that it happened during that time frame, not, not before Christmas, obviously. And so people are aware Echelon's a pretty high-end product. You, you know, I hate to compare you to Peloton, yes. but that's effectively what, what yeah, you are. We're $1,000 to $2,000, half the price of, of our leading competitors. 
But, um, you know, we haven't seen any problems. But the biggest concern we have is the trade shows. A lot of trade shows are being canceled in our industry. Mm -hmm. The Canton Fair in China is being canceled. The, uh, there's a show in Taiwan for sporting goods being canceled. And one of our leading customers is not going to the fitness show in, uh, in San Diego so coming up. So business leads perhaps business lost. Business opportunities are going to be lost and delayed. Okay, so Josh, let's turn to you. You're on a much different end in terms of the price spectrum. These are toys. Um, one of these kind of reminds me of my lacrosse game uh, yeah. growing up here, the, the pop and pass. Interestingly enough, both this pop and pass and birdie golf, which are some of the products you manufacture, could they be helped because you have some availability of this product at a time when retailers are desperate to put stuff on shelves? Yes, Kelly, absolutely. And before I get to that, I just want to say you heard it first on the exchange. Christmas is not canceled. <laughs> there will be toys for Christmas. Um, but there were short-term challenges we faced in terms of uh, delays on outdoor toys specifically for summer that would normally be shipping now. Hmm. And then maybe like in a month to six weeks would be on shelves at Walmart and Target and those places. So there's a delay in the outdoor products. And so some of the larger retailers were reaching out to all their suppliers here and saying, hey, who has domestic inventory that we can grab now available? And then luckily for us, we brought in our products early at the end of last year. So and that was just by coincidence? Or? Uh, honestly, it was because it was a new category. The outdoor summer toy market was a new uh, area that we wanted to go into. So we just happened to bring them in early last year. And so we're sitting on a warehouse full of product in Portland. So we're like, yeah, we have stuff to sell you. Right, so it's right. good for us. You can take advantage of it. So let's talk about what you're seeing on the ground. When, we, when our producers first spoke with you, you said your factory in Guangdong was running at only 15% of capacity. Yep. And you're up to where now? Uh, as of now, as of today, we're about 50% capacity. Um, there's challenges with a lot of the sub-suppliers, actually, delivering everything from the screws you need, blisters, packaging materials, all these extra things that you need to finish your... Uh, your, your product, there's delays there that we're seeing, we're seeing about 30 to 60 days, so not close to what you're just, we're seeing also. Same question for you, because I imagine you're also a little more price sensitive, trying to keep you know, prices of, of this product down. There's maybe less margin there, although maybe not. Maybe you have plenty of cushion. Um, are you dealing with uh, price spikes? Are you going to have to pass those along at all? And are you dealing in general with delays and <clears throat> a lack of supply that, that will be coming in the months ahead at this point? We, in general, we, we plan on keeping prices the same. We'll probably eat some uh, margin loss on our side, but um, we don't foresee the prices like going crazy or spiking at all for fall. Again, I think, I think the supply chain for Christmas, which is the most important in the toy industry, um, that will be pretty much, it should be fine. What would you say uh, people need to know, Lou, about what's happening in China right now? Well, I think the Chinese actually, unlike you've heard from a lot of people, I think they've dealt with this, this tragedy pretty well, and they've put a lot of systems in place. You know, when I've been going to China for the last three or four years, ever since SARS, you walk through any airport, you get a, a temperature gauge on your head. Yeah. You know, so you can't go in unless and they make you remove your hat. So we've put those type of systems in place in our factories. We have everyone has to clean their hands. Everyone has their temperature checked. Uh, we disinfect the factory once a week, fully disinfect. We clean all door handles every single day. So they put a lot of things in place. And I also mentioned to you about the WeChat right. on their chat thing where they're making people not go into into certain areas Unless if they've been in infected approved. places. We have yeah. to go, Josh. I just want to ask you, if the, the slowdown comes to the U.S., is that a bigger problem for you at this point? Um, we, well, again, well, because we have most of our product already here, we're in a good position where we can continue shipping. And I think, you know, Amazon, we were talking about this off air, Amazon, uh, for both of us, is a big um, a ch a channel for us to get product to the consumer. So I think as long as Amazon's running, we can still sell them at least. But All right. And get those delivery guys out there. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you both. Really appreciate it. A much more robust view of what's going on. Again, Josh Lorzel and Lou Lenteni.
Well, the Dow has shed 4,000 points in the past week, but is posting a big rebound today as investors bet stimulus is on the way worldwide. Is this a real turnaround? We'll ask. Here are the uh, best performers on the NASDAQ 100 today. JD.com, Tesla, Costco, and Gilead leading the way. We're back in two. Welcome back. Quite the rebound in the market today. We're off the highs, though. Dow was up 815 at that point. We're up uh, about 690 right now. Most of this action in the past hour. Investors are betting that central banks around the world will be riding to the rescue. So is this a real turning point? And dare we say a bottom with us is Steve Grasso. He's director of institutional sales at Stuart Frankel and a CNBC contributor. Steve, um, again, I, it's tough to try to call the bottom unless you feel like you want to kind of go that direction. Maybe we'll just focus on what the market is expecting right. out of this uh, G7 meeting tomorrow. Yeah, I don't, feel, I don't feel comfortable that anyone should be calling a bottom just yet. I did feel comfortable on that 2855 level in the S&P cash. I think that was a near-term bottom. But when you look at the overall market, we had a, a pension fund rebalance on Friday, Cal, and there was a huge amount of stock that needed to be bought. I think you're seeing after effects of that. And I think you're seeing the predominant effect of that G7 meeting that you were just talking about. I mean, there is a lot priced in. Let's remember, in order to get today's rebound, we have to basically price in 75 basis points of Fed cuts in two weeks, plus some kind of coordinated central bank action tomorrow. What are you looking for? And, and my point being, how much disappointment might there be if we don't, you know, if they don't deliver? Right. So if you look at the G7 conference call that I think uh, the market is getting ahead of today. I think that's the big question mark. I think the other headlines of the day uh, is uh, President Trump trying to you know, get the pharmaceutical companies, the drug companies to kind of put a hard press on developing a vaccine or developing treatments and also the pressure that's going to be put on our Fed to do something proactive ahead of this. So to your point, I think there's a lot that the bears are going to need to contend with over the next couple of uh, days or so. But I do believe the mortality rate and the fatality rate, although it's terrible for people who are suffering from it, still not something that the market should be factoring in because when, when I was looking at and when the world was looking at 2 to 3% mortality rate, now mm. we heard from a guest on Squawk Box this morning that's probably 0.2% mm. to 0.4%. Mm. So it's just a, it, it's just a worse flu. And I don't think that the market should be factoring in this much to the downside if that's what we're really battling with. All right. That is the latest thinking with this uh, rebound today. Steve, it's good to see you. Thank you, sir. Steve Grasso. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.